0: If you provide something for children to write, gradually they learn to think of content better.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW, my name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Andrew, do you know what one of the very first convention talks I ever heard from you?
0: Well, it might have been one of the very first convention talks I gave.
1: I know, right? That was a long time ago. I heard you give the convention talk, Reaching the Reluctant Writer.
0: That was one of the first ones I I, came, I think it was the second one I ever came up with. Right. Mainly because there seemed to be a lot of people interested in that subject.
1: Right. And even today, that's probably one of the most important talks for people who are new to IEW to hear.
0: I think so. Yeah. And... It is also a case where you get the the folks who really are at a point of frustration. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for some help. And we are so happy to be able to help them.
1: <laughs> we love helping people. So I'm thinking about what you say to the teens about teaching and sales.
0: They're both a hurt and rescue operation? Yeah, that. right. So if someone feels the pain of not having what you can offer them, then they'll be very happy to provide you their time and money and attention to solve that problem. And so in our business, we don't have to do the hurting part usually. <laughs> people people are already feeling some mm-hmm. pain, some frustration, and then we get to help out. And so this subject of reaching the reluctant writer, it's probably not going to go away. No. People can have reluctant writers for many different reasons. Right. They can have a child who had a very bad experience in, say, a school and got frustrated and started to hate the subject. And then they come into a different situation and we can change that experience. Or sometimes parents themselves had experience in school that makes them feel like they really don't know how to teach something they never really felt like they learned. Mm-hmm. Or of course, the whole area of learning disabilities, kids who have dyslexia or an auditory processing that makes that writing on demand so much harder. And fortunately, our system works for everyone.
1: Right. And even as we bring up this topic of the reluctant writer, and I'd like to hear what your definition of a reluctant writer is. But before we go there, I'm also very mindful of the students who are proficient writers. And here we go again, IEW is only for reluctant writers, right?
0: Well, we obviously see that our system works all up and down the spectrum of aptitude in terms of if you have a high aptitude child, and you give them tools that will make they're writing even better, they'll have more fun, they'll take off, they'll just love that checklist and they'll become even more creative. Mm -hmm. Give those same tools to a student who has no tools at all and they finally can do something and that can just transform their world. So yes, we have to be careful that people don't kind of think narrowly Mm -hmm. about our approach, Mm -hmm. but it is fun to hear those stories. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a child who could never... Have written a whole paragraph and we've been at it six months, and he just wrote a five paragraph composition,
1: and I'm so happy. I mean, we we
0: live for that stuff. We do. We do. Unfortunately, we hear it frequently, but what is the path from here to there?
1: Right. And that's what this talk is. Exactly. So let's just dive in. Let's just start your Reaching the Reluctant Writer talk.
0: If I meet children who don't like to write, if you meet children, you can ask them, why don't you like to write? And they'll usually say things like, because it's hard, because it's tough, because I don't like it. You know, they kind of get into a tautology. But if you can cut through that and say, what is it about it that you find frustrating? Very often the answer is...
1: I don't know what to write. I don't
0: know what to write. I can't think of anything. I, I don't have anything to know what to say. Right. And this is, I think, the most common problem particularly for upper elementary and middle school kids. And it's such an easy problem to fix, although so often mm-hmm. teachers out there, parents who are trying to get their kids writing, think that that the child has to think of something to write in order to learn to write. Right. And what we've discovered, of course, is the inverse is much more true, that if you provide something for children to write the content, gradually they learn to think of content better. So we start by eliminating the biggest problem, I don't know what to write. Mm -hmm. And we give them the little source text. Now, some people, when they look at this, they think, well, that's not, quote, real writing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what is real writing? Some people like to say things like, writing is expressing yourself. Okay, I'll categorically deny that. <laughs> Some people will say, writing is getting your ideas down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, but wh- whose ideas are they really? Mm-hmm. I mean, ideas are ideas. So let's simplify that one one bit and say, writing is expressing ideas. I'll go with that. Right. But where those ideas come from can be a variety of places. Historically, if you look from, say, the ancient times up until even Enlightenment period times, most people learn to write by first learning how to express already existing ideas, Mm -hmm. to recreate, to re-express. And what I find so exciting about that word recreate is that it's obvious, but a lot of people never notice the word recreate is the same as recreate. Right. Right. And so when you represent, you recreate, you re-express, there's kind of a, a satisfaction in yes. that in a way. And we could talk about, okay, the pro gymnasmata, the ancient rhetoric exercises. Number one thing, retell a fable. Right. We could go all the way up to Benjamin Franklin, who in his autobiography talked about having a magazine, The Spectator, and thinking it to be very good writing, wanting to imitate that. And so he took short hints of the sentiment in each sentence and then tried to reconstruct those ideas.
1: And I wonder how he came up with the idea to do that. This wasn't something that...
0: Well, I don't know. He didn't necessarily explain that right. <laughs> in his autobiography about writing. But we do know that the classical tradition of education at its core uses imitation. And of course, you see that humans are naturally attracted to imitation. Young children will imitate songs and sounds that they hear in fact we learn all our language by imitation right think about little boys in legos right (laughs) they get the lego kit and it has a little picture of something and they want to put the pieces together to imitate that picture right and do that a few times and kind of master the putting the pieces together in certain ways and then they start to be creative and say oh i could do it different than that i could put this with that and, and experiment and play. And so there's kind of a, a spectrum, if you will, I think, of of creativity. We kind of think of creative, well, it has to be unique and original. Right. Whereas really it starts with imitation and moves to slight variations, and then it moves to greater variations or elaborations, and then it moves in and starts to look like something Different than what it was, right? But this idea of providing a child with a source text to start reaching that reluctant writer, it works just almost like magic. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember teaching a demonstration class at a middle school in Washington State, okay? And I just walked in. I didn't know any of the kids. There's like 40 kids in this room. We were wow. in like an auditorium or something, mm-hmm. and they're all middle school, so 11, 12, 13, this age range. And awkward just, age. Yeah, yeah, awkward age stuff. And anyway, I just start teaching a lesson. I don't know, I don't know any history of any of the kids, and right. I'm running around trying to help them. Okay, time's up, and one of the teachers came up to me, and she said, "That was the most amazing thing." I have ever seen. Oh, wow. Because that little boy over on your right side there, and she reminded me which mm-hmm. one he was. She said, he's never been able to write more than a sentence without freezing up or breaking down mm-hmm. or just losing it. He wrote a whole <laughs> paper today. Right. She was just amazed. Mm-hmm. Of course, I didn't know that that was his history, mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was such a struggle for him. But what I do know is that when you give kids that content, then they're free to learn the process. Right. So that's what we do. And and I like to point out that probably in choosing a source text, the most important thing is, well, can you have two most important things? <laughs> I mean, most is a superlative, yes. so one has to be more than the other, I suppose. But the two very, very, very most important things are, number one, you want the source text to be at or preferably below the reading level of the student because you want them to be able to read it, understand it, have good comprehension, and then go through the process of making the keyword outline, retelling it verbally, and writing it down. And you don't want it to have too many long sentences or unfamiliar words or concepts that aren't familiar. You want it to be relatively easy. That's what makes for success. And if at all possible, you want your content to be somewhat interesting.
1: Which is sometimes hard when you have to be careful that the vocabulary isn't too advanced.
0: That's true. Although everything can can be defined. Sure. defined for the students in a way. Right. But when I'm saying interesting, I'm thinking of something that engages their imagination. Okay, right. I like, of course, and you've seen me many times teach with Aesop fables. Mm -hmm. Aesop fables are just kind of perfect because they are generally short. Short is good for reluctant writers. Absolutely. They come in different flavors. You can get ones that sound a little bit antiquated in their vocabulary or style. You can also get kind of a more modern version. You can get them online. Every library has lots of books of them. There's 180 some, I believe, Mm -hmm. total to choose from. So they're abundant. And they're easy to work with because they have a little narrative line usually. Mm -hmm. So there's some, some kind of story. And there's some kind of moral message theme, something that makes it memorable. And so Aesop fables are great. Also, I've noticed you can use Aesop fables with grade two kids. You can use Aesop fables with high schoolers. Right. And adults. Nobody really objects to Aesop fables. So I love that. But you're not limited. Mm -hmm. You can use interesting animals, interesting people, places perhaps, events, things that you might want to learn about anyway although i always suggest you know if you're working with boys yes you want to catch their attention <laughs> find something that is dangerous violent disgusting or gross or humorous and you'll you'll catch them quick, yes. quickly
1: as a mother of boys i can absolutely attest to that yes
0: you, well you know one of my
1: favorites and one of your favorite source texts yeah about the eggplant
0: no the hagfish oh the
1: hag the hagfish, hagfish. The
0: eggplant is satire, but the hagfish is is real. It lives in the depths of the ocean, and it's also called the slime eel. Oh, right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And so the hagfish, when it's threatened by an attacker or or some other fish that might like to eat it or something, (laughs) it defends itself in a most unique manner. It kind of exudes, it, it pushes out, it vomits from its skin. Its whole body just exudes This great blob of slime (laughs) And the slime Chemically reacts with the seawater To increase in volume (laughs) And a a slime eel A hagfish can, Can create like gallons of slime In a very short period of time And this slime Then clogs the gills Of its Attacker, of whoever's threatening it And In order to escape its own slime, it has this awesome trick. You can watch it on YouTube. Okay. It ties itself in a knot and pushes its head through its knot and pushes the slime off its tail and swims away and leaves the poor would-be attacker struggling to breathe in this cloud of ocean slime. I mean, isn't that awesome? but it gets better. Oh, it gets better. When the hagfish itself when it eats, it doesn't eat kind of like normal fish, right? It latches onto its prey, which might be an older sick fish or something, but it finds one and it latches on and it has this little rasp-like tongue and it digs a hole eating its victim from the inside out alive.
1: So this is why I'm really happy that we've never done vlogs instead of podcasts, because I would hate for our (laughs) listeners to see my face right now. It's just all screwed up. Yuck. Yuck. But we'll be sure and put a link in our show notes to (laughs) Hagfish and a source text that we actually have for Hagfish. We do,
0: and I've used it. And I will tell you, there isn't a boy worth his salt who wouldn't prefer to write a little report about the hagfish <laughs> right. than something supposedly important like Betsy Ross and the flag or, you know. <laughs> right. So I do encourage people working with reluctant writer boys, find something kind of like that, that's gripping, that's dramatic, that will catch their imagination and will be much more engaged in the whole process.
1: Right, and as they're being engaged in the disgusting source text, they are perhaps forgetting that they're engaging in an activity that they hate.
0: Right. Well, and and we're going to we're going to be doing it in a completely different way okay. than what a lot of kids are used to. Hmm. Now, I can relate to the reluctant writer. Actually, I still am a reluctant <laughs> writer. You know, people assume I like writing. You, yes. of all people, know <laughs> what it takes to get me <laughs> To disconnect from everything else and write an article.
1: I think your last article you wrote on a plane from the States to the Philippines. You were locked into a silver tube. I guess so. (laughs) I was
0: locked in and it was a critical deadline. Yes. It's not quite true. I like having written things. Right. Right. I just don't like the process of getting from here to there.
1: But you sure do it well, though, when you finally well, produce something. Well, uh, maybe,
0: by God's grace <laughs> mm-hmm. only. But most kids find themselves in the way I found myself in elementary school, which mm-hmm. was you know, something like, Okay, children, today we're going to write stories, mm-hmm. and you can make it up. <laughs> and I used to think, Oh, no, Lord, please, no, not stories, <laughs> not make it up, just... Could I please just copy something from an encyclopedia? I can't think of anything. Mm -hmm. You know, tears dripping on my paper. And I would get, you know, once upon a time, there was a, and then just a big blank. Like, Mm -hmm. somehow I had to think of something that nobody else ever thought of before. Mm -hmm. And it was just this wall, this writer's block was just horrible. And of course, inevitably, I was sitting right across the aisle from... Some kid who's four pages into right. her next novel, <laughs> right. and I remember thinking, you know, how does someone do that? Because mm-hmm. I I was just stuck. So I have a lot of empathy for kids that that have that problem of how do you get even get started. So we're going to make it so easy. The first thing, of course, is read the source text, talk about it, be sure everybody understands all the words, and then we will make what we call a keyword outline. And this keyword outline is where the student will go back and reread the first sentence and then choose two or three keywords from that first sentence. Mm-hmm. Maybe underline them on the source text. That's good for young children.
1: And for those with visual tracking issues. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. They can So they can underline the keywords and then copy those mm-hmm. keywords into... The, the outline. Then read the next sentence, find three keywords, copy those three words, read the next sentence, find the words that kind of will help them remember the basic idea. Copy those. And hopefully that's not going to take too long if you have a, a source text. Most Aesop fables are four, five, six, eight, nine sentences. So right. somewhere in that range. Right. We try to find source text and a lot of our materials designed to help parents get started with structure and style are of, of that same range. Mm-hmm. So you're basically copying three words from, say, seven, eight, nine sentences, and that's not so impossible. Nope. I mean, and anybody who can copy a word can yep. do that. Yep. And then you put the original away, and you look at the keywords you wrote, and you say, okay lives deep ocean. Why did I write lives deep ocean? Oh yeah, the hagfish lives deep in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. boom, you've got a sentence that you can say to yourself.
1: Or out loud as a little speech from your keyword outline. Sure.
0: Mm -hmm. So you look at the next keywords and then you can say those keywords into sentences. Mm -hmm. So you read the keywords, think, what was I thinking when I wrote those? say what you were thinking and go through that outline and narrate essentially with the help of the keywords, the content back.
1: So you're just putting flesh on the skeleton.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And pretty much everyone can do this. Right. It's rare that I meet a child who won't get the hang of this after just a, a couple tries. Right. And if it is a case where they can't make sentences out of keywords, there's usually some kind of language or learning issue But you can still keep working with that by going so far as to dictate the sentence and have them repeat back and dictate and repeat back and just model it very tightly.
1: Using their keyword outline.
0: Exactly. Right. And what usually happens is their sentences are a little different than the original. Right. They may phrase it differently, or maybe there was an aspect, a detail that didn't make it into the keyword outline that was supplemental but not key, and they leave that out, mm-hmm. or they switch the order of things in a sentence. And that's all fine. We're not expecting the student to spit it back from memory. The talking through the keyword outline is a test of the outline, not a test of the child. And so that's very useful in many ways. Number one, telling back the content is a great way to learn what you're learning. Right. Right. In fact, we naturally do that. Mm. When we want to remember something. (laughs) Yes. We will find usually a handy victim like our spouse (laughs) and we'll say, oh, let me tell you. Not because they're so fascinated, but because we know that if we tell it to them, then we're more likely to remember that.
1: Right. I, I will sometimes say to my husband, help me to remember this one thing. Well, he may not necessarily help me to remember, but now I'm more likely to remember because I've spoken it out loud.
0: And he's listening and you're going to explain it and you're going to hear yourself. Yep. And so there's that. Yep. And we all know as teachers, the best way to really understand something is to explain it, teach it, present it to someone else. Right. So this just this first step of copying keywords... And telling back content verbally has tremendous benefits. Right. And that essentially is unit one of our nine units in the structure and style syllabus.
1: I'm thinking, I'm putting myself in the listener's chair. Perhaps you're out walking. Perhaps you're ironing, perhaps you're doing dishes, perhaps you're sitting at your desk grading papers and you're thinking, yeah, I already know all of this. I've been doing IEW for many years, or maybe you're just getting started. Maybe someone's introduced you to our podcast. This particular talk, Reaching the Reluctant Writer, has so many gems in it. So if you're new to IEW or if you've been down the road with us, At least know this, this is the foundation of everything we do. And just like you said, Andrew, this is step one of so many possibilities that they can now go to, but going through our pathway, and we're not going to get very far on our pathway in this reaching the reluctant writer talk, but we're giving them something to start with. That's very easy.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the temptations that we always face in teaching is we want to cut to the chase. <laughs> yes. We want to get to where we think we want to be
1: mm-hmm.
0: magically, immediately, without putting in the time or effort. I mean, we, we all want to do this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But what we discover then is that it doesn't usually work. Right. And I start right here with this basic idea with everyone, regardless mm-hmm. of their age or experience. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say, you know, I teach the same thing to grade two students as graduate school because this is our pathway. Right. And if you start here on this pathway, lots of great things happen. Number one, you're starting with the discipline of having an outline. Mm-hmm. And you meet a lot of kids in middle school or high school. They don't want to take the time to make an outline because they know it all. They right. don't need to. It's a waste of time. It's extra work. But of course, the truth is, anytime you separate the complexity, what to write first, then how to write it, you're going to get better writing in the end. (laughs) Reminds me of one little story. I was in, gosh, I think it was Colorado, and it was the early days when I had to do all my own box schlepping and booth (laughs) setting up. And I was setting up the booths, and this little girl comes by. She's probably one of the kids of one of the organizers or other vendors and she walks up to me and she's probably 12 years old she looks at me kind of scowling mm-hmm. she says I know you
1: uh-oh
0: and I said oh really she goes yes <laughs> you're the guy on the writing video <laughs> not in a terribly pleasant manner I must admit <laughs> and I said oh so you've watched the the writing video How, how's it going she goes I hate it oh dear well okay so Fair enough. So I said, wonderful. What do you hate the most? And she said, making those outlines. And I said "I said to her, well, does making an outline first help you write better compositions? She said, of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, you know, she knew the truth. It just wasn't a pleasant truth. But what happens is if you start with young children, and you start with outlines, Mm -hmm. not prose, whatever comes into your head, Mm -hmm. just write, you know, try to write a sentence. So if you start with outlines and you stick with outlines, the way you get the keywords gradually changes through our units. Right. Unit one and two, we start with keywords from every sentence, and then we gradually move on to the point where in unit seven, we're taking, you know, those keywords from ideas in our mind, Mm -hmm. inventive writing. So the, the source of keywords changes, but the format of the outline stays pretty consistent. But what happens is if you start early on with that discipline of making outlines, then you don't have that problem of, oh, it's so burdensome to do so. I don't like that because that's the natural way. Right. And you know my daughter, Julia, of mm-hmm. course.
1: Mm-hmm. I was hoping you were going to tell the story. <laughs> yeah,
0: she's, uh, gosh, how old is she now, 22? Don't tell her age. Yeah. She's married and has children. She's married of and has two children. children. Yes. But uh, I remember one day, years and years ago, I came into the kitchen. She was probably nine years old. She's sitting at the kitchen table making a keyword outline. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, Julia, what are you doing? She says, making a keyword outline. I <laughs> said, oh are you going to write something? She goes, yep, a letter to my friend. Mm -hmm. You see? And she, of all the children, was the one who kind of never really did writing in any form without making those outlines first. And to this day, she still is very organized in planning what she's going to write out. She does some marvelous uh, blog posts and Mm -hmm. various things. But that discipline of think first, Mm -hmm. then write. My father said to me as I was growing up on numerous occasions, Andy, think before (laughs) you speak. Well, you can imagine if it's important to think before you speak, how much more important to think before you write.
1: Right. Saves a lot of time in the long run. Saves a
0: lot in the long run. And your readers appreciate that. So We've really only just touched the tip of the iceberg here, but as a reminder to people, if you've already been doing this for a while, Mm -hmm. the value of what you do when you set that foundation of making the outline, and then we can coach the reluctant writer into putting those keywords into sentences and then becoming a bit creative in doing that, looking at options for vocabulary and talking about style techniques all of the skills of prose writing mm-hmm. can be addressed separate from what to write about right we remove that problem i don't know what to write about and the reluctant writer is almost always surprised by i can do that right. it's not impossible
1: sounds like you've set us up actually for part two of this talk where we actually get to do an exercise just like that can we do that next time?
0: Without a whiteboard? <laughs> yeah,
1: we have an imaginative audience. Absolutely.
0: We'll give it a shot.
1: Okay, see you then. Thanks so much for joining us.